Matthew 21, 1 through 11, this is the word of God. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did this as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your son who is the word, who was with you in the beginning. Thank you, Father, that you sent him to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you willingly left your glory in heaven and emptied yourself, humbled yourself, became one of us, took on the form of a servant. You were obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Lord, we look forward to celebrating that this week. As horrific as it is, it's beautiful because it's through that cross that you yourself took our place. We praise you, Jesus, that you didn't stay in the grave, but you rose from the dead. You ascended into heaven. You sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, with all glory and power, and you will come again to judge the living and the dead. We praise you that you are our king. Help us to get a glimpse of you today from your word and encourage us, inform us, teach us. Lord, speak to us. We pray your message today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, who here likes a good parade? Anyone? Three people like parades. (laughs) They can, be, they can be a lot of fun. I just got back from uh, Pasadena last week, and of course, that's where the Rose Bowl Parade, the Rose Parade is held, and, and uh, the whole city turns out for, for weeks to work on those floats, putting seed by seed oftentimes uh, the, these things together. Uh, we have uh, parades to celebrate holidays. Uh, they're, they're, you know, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, here in our region uh, some parades celebrate local community. Uh, I grew up in a, a small town in Sedgwick, Kansas. We had a three-day fall festival every, every fall that included a parade down Main Street on Saturday morning. And as kids, uh, we would decorate our bikes with streamers and, and uh, ride in the parade as we got older. Uh, some of us would be in the marching band or in other groups. And you always hoped that you were placed in front of the horses um, that wasn't always the case, and so you had to pay attention, uh, which was a little easier on a bike than it was marching in formation. 
Uh, parades to celebrate holidays, parades to celebrate community. Some parades are a show of force. Last year, North Korea moved forward its annual military parade to coincide with the start of the Winter Olympics in Seoul. Uh, Everyone understood that this parade was a celebration of a country's military, but it was a show of force to send a message to other countries that they were a power to be reckoned with. The ancient world loved parades too. And one of the most important ones was called a Roman triumph. And it was definitely a show of force, a celebration of military victory. The general, after a victory, would ride in a four-horse chariot through the streets of Rome in procession with his army. Captives that were taken uh, during that conflict were paraded through the streets along with the spoils of war. And at the temple to Jupiter, the general would offer sacrifices and the tokens of his victory to his God. When you participate in a parade, you're choosing to celebrate something. Today is Palm Sunday. It commemorates what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's an ironic term, triumphal entry, because it seems to have that Roman triumph in the background, but it couldn't have been more different. And that difference is highlighted by its contrast with the other parade that most likely entered the city that day. You see, uh, that day was the start of the Passover, uh, the greatest festival in the Jewish calendar. People came to Jerusalem from all over Israel and from beyond, and the city was bursting at the seams with people. And the Passover, if you recall, was associated with Jewish independence and nationalism, national pride. It celebrated the liberation of the Jews from another empire, from Egypt through the Exodus. And uprisings were always in the air, and so it would have been customary for Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who didn't live in Jerusalem, he lived in Caesarea by the sea on the Mediterranean coast, it would have been customary for him to come with his soldiers to Jerusalem to reinforce the Roman garrison there near the temple. Imagine what that parade would have looked like. Two biblical scholars describe it this way. They describe it as a visual display of imperial power. Cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold, sounds, the marching of feet, the creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust, the eyes of the silent onlookers, some curious, some awed, some resentful. This parade was meant to send a message. It proclaimed the glory and power of Rome, and it demanded submission. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was in stark contrast to that display. He entered the city declaring his own kingship, as we'll see, in contrast to Rome, But rather than dominating people and demanding submission, he came to the city announcing peace, peace that would come through his death for rebels. In the previous chapter, Matthew 20, Jesus explained his purpose to the 12 disciples. 
He said, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus knew what he was doing when he entered the city that day. The triumphal entry set the stage for Jesus' victory through defeat by way of the cross, but ultimately the resurrection later that week. In the triumphal entry, we see three things. We see the declaration of the king, we see the character of the king, and we see a response to the king. So let's look first at the declaration of the king. When he arrived near the city, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 3, tell us that he sent two of his disciples ahead of him to bring a donkey for him to ride into the city. And verses 4 and 5 tell us the significance of that. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. Jesus arranged for this scenario. Jesus was using the donkey to make a deliberate, unmistakably symbolic gesture. And by quoting from Zechariah 9.9, a prophecy about the coming of Messiah, Jesus was declaring himself to be that person, Israel's true and rightful king. But there's more to the passage in Zechariah than the king's mode of transportation. This action would have brought to mind uh, to those uh, Jewish uh, readers who understood the context, it would have brought to mind the wider context The very next verse in Zechariah says what the Messiah will do when he comes to his people. Zechariah 9.10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Do you recognize what Jesus is proclaiming when he rides in on the donkey that day? It's a subversive, spiritual, very political message. When a king went out to war, he rode a war horse. After victory, when he arrived on a donkey, it symbolized that he had established peace. He had brought peace. Notice also that Jesus brings peace not just to Jerusalem, but to all the nations. Everyone, regardless of nationality or background, would be invited into this kingdom. But you can only experience the peace of his kingdom if you submit to him as king. In other words, Jesus claims absolute authority and allegiance. He will rule from the river to the ends of the earth. That is exactly the kind of Messiah that Rome sent troops to put down. That is exactly the kind of message that the Jewish leaders were afraid would stir up trouble and threaten their comfortable position collaborating with the enemy. That's the kind of message that might disturb your life as well. Jesus comes offering the peace of the kingdom. It's a promise of 
of shalom, a, a promise of, of, of fulfilling and satisfying life lived in harmony with God and with others. But it requires submitting to a king, living under his authority and his guidance, not calling the shots for yourself. The Roman way was to assert power and strength and overcome your opposition. Jesus' way, though He is King of all kings, Lord of all lords, He comes offering peace. He comes to give you peace, the peace of God's reign as a gift when you voluntarily submit your life to Him. Why would we voluntarily do that? Well, because He's a good King. Consider, second, the character of the king. Notice what the prophecy says about the Messiah. It tells us that he's humble. Contrary to Pilate's arrival into the city, no trumpets sounded before Jesus, no chariots of state, no imperial uniforms or honor guard. The peasant prophet from Jerusalem rode a donkey. He didn't even own the donkey. He had to borrow it from others because they didn't even have a saddle the disciples had to throw their garments on it it would have been a ridiculous display except for one thing it was the fulfillment of prophecy this was god's plan all along rather than dominating people and beating them into submission like all the worldly powers do jesus comes first offering peace he offers the kingdom as a gift he influences people through his very being. He conquers his enemies through his humble love and merciful, sacrificial service. He's a humble king. We also see that he's righteous and gracious. The portion from Zechariah that Matthew skipped over when he quoted it in verse 9, but surely Matthew had in mind, uh, says this. It says, Behold your king coming to you, righteous and having salvation, righteous and victorious. He, he is humble and mounted on a donkey. And the Scriptures are clear that all of us have rebelled against God, our rightful king. The sinless one comes to bring salvation to sinful people. He's righteous and gracious at the same time. And because he's righteous, he's able to offer salvation to unrighteous people. This is closely related to another characteristic of the king. We've already seen it. He's a peacemaker. Again, the normal order of things, the way the people expected Messiah to come would be that he would ride out on a horse of war and then return having accomplished that victory on a donkey in peace, having won the war by beating the enemy into submission. Pastor Peter alluded to it earlier in the preparation. Jesus will symbolically ride a war horse one day too. But he comes and offers peace before the battle, before that day comes. You see, there will be another kind of triumphal entry that is coming when Jesus comes a second time. And we read about that in Revelation 19, John's vision of the last battle between Christ and the forces of evil. Listen to how John envisions this final battle between God and those that would oppose him. 
Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, this is a picture of Jesus at the end of the age when he finally comes for final judgment. When Jesus reveals his glorious, all powerful kingship in that way, it'll be too late to switch sides. God has every right to visit us in that way immediately whenever we sin, but he doesn't. He's patient. He's forbearing. Before he comes in judgment, he comes offering himself to the judge in judgment in order to establish peace. In his earthly ministry described in Matthew 21, Jesus comes as your rightful king, your rightful king. He comes riding a donkey symbolizing peace, holding out amnesty for all who would renounce their efforts to live for anything and everything else that rules us more than him. But more than coming to offer peace, Jesus enters the city to make peace. In just a few days, he'll orchestrate events so that he will shed his own blood to save all who will receive his free gift of pardon and to come to him by faith in response to his love. He would receive the penalty for our sin that we deserve so that we could have peace with God and know his, his fatherly love. No other king loves you like that. No other king brings you peace on those terms. No other ruler would die so that you could be not just his subject, but his child, an heir to his own kingdom. And all you have to do to receive this king is believe that he is who he said he is, that you need him to forgive your sin and make you uh, his, his subject, to give you new life, to trust him to do just that as you seek to follow him. Romans 10 explains it this way. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. In the triumphal entry, Jesus declares himself to be the one true king. And in the triumphal entry, Jesus shows us the kind of king he is, humble, patient, righteous, gracious. Third, look at the response to the king. What Jesus was saying about himself was not lost on the crowd. 
They recognized the symbolism. They recognized its connection to Zechariah 9. We see their response in Matthew 21, verses 8 and 9. It says, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Right? Consider first what the people did. By spreading their coats, laying branches on the road, the people were honoring Jesus as their king. It was like an improvised red carpet. And it's not the first time it had happened in Israel's history. In the Old Testament, after Elisha, the prophet, sent one of his servants to anoint Jehu as the next king of Israel, 2 Kings 9.13 tells us that they quickly took their cloaks, spread them under him on the bare steps, then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. And so like that improvised processional for King Jehu from the past, when he was suddenly anointed as king, the people offer their own improvised processional right on the spot because they recognize the symbolism of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Second, consider what the people said. They shouted, Hosanna, which means save now. It's a prayer to God to grant the victory of his kingdom because the appropriate moment has arrived. The day of the Lord is here. Hosanna is the word translated, Lord, save us, in Psalm 18, verse 25. And Psalm 118 is one of the psalms that pilgrims would sing on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. That verse is followed by verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This psalm is directly messianic. It even speaks about the stone rejected by the builders but was destined to become the cornerstone in verse 22. The people were quoting the perfect psalm for exactly what Jesus intended to do in the triumphal entry. They called him the son of David. The crowd acknowledged that Jesus was the Davidic Messiah. Now, an important aside, the, the crowds clearly understood what Jesus was saying about himself, and they joyfully acknowledged it. They declared him to be the Messiah, and they exuberantly worshiped God for it. And some of them really meant it. The crowd included the twelve. It likely included Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, surely others who kept their allegiance to mourn Jesus' death at the foot of the cross a few days later. But many in the crowd who were cheering Jesus on Sunday would betray him on Friday. How was it possible for them to turn on him so quickly? The short answer is that they came to understand that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they expected. They wanted a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans, one who would ride the war horse out against their enemies. But the very patience and peace of Jesus necessarily postponed that day. The donkey he rode into the city announcing peace applied to the Romans just as much as it did to them and every other people on earth who were his enemies because of their sin. 
And, and the people didn't want anything to do with that. Right? They wanted a Messiah on their terms. This should give us pause today. Do we want a Messiah on our terms as well? Do we cheer him because we think he'll give us what the other so-called lords promise? Worldly success, a comfortable lifestyle, getting ahead through your own strength, often indifferent to the, indifferent to the needs of others. Will we turn against him if he doesn't give us those things in this life? How will we relate to him when we suffer or go through hard times? Do we want a Messiah on our terms? Or do we want a Messiah who came into the city to gather us into his family with values on a collision course with our secular society? One whose path from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, uh, who chose a path from Good Friday to Good Friday, and, and who calls us to take up our own cross as well for his sake and for the sake of the gospel for others. Two parades, two processionals went through Jerusalem that day. Which parade are you in? Where is your allegiance? Are you part of the ragamuffin discipleship band that followed Jesus? If you're not, do you want to be? Will you choose to follow him even today? I think the reality is that most of us want both. We want to be in both groups. We want to follow this Jesus that we find so attractive, yet we struggle to understand what he's all about and to appreciate his upside-down kingdom. The gospel is that Jesus went to the cross for us anyway. He knows us. He loves us. He dies for us so that we can be forgiven and gradually over time be transformed to become more and more like Him as we learn to take up our crosses and follow Him. So will you choose on this Palm Sunday to follow this humble, righteous, gracious, peacemaking King? That's the question for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise You that You are King of kings and Lord of lords. You have all glory and power. You are seated above all things. You've always been sovereign. And yet, you didn't just come to squash a rebellion. You came to offer yourself to rebels. Lord, melt our hearts. Show us your love and your patience and your grace that you would so humble yourself to do that for us. And Lord, change us by your love. Help us more and more to share your character, your outlook, your values, your perspective on life and people, our enemies, our suffering, our circumstances, all of life, Lord. Would we live it to your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.